Hello and welcome to the Kayla Says Podcast. This is Kayla and I am finally back for a a riveting rendition of this week's uh, topic. Um, Maybe just a couple of updates. I know I've been in MIA for a little bit. It's been a crazy couple of weeks per the usual in my life. You know, work, school, kid, the usual. Uh, last week I had a wedding that I attended that was so much fun. The bridal party came out to Future's March Madness. So it was safe to say it was a lituation that I greatly enjoyed. Um, I was really hoping this week that I would be able to podcast, uh, from New York. So I was planning on going to New York to visit my very best friend and spend some time frolicking in the Big Apple, but she had some very important work to do, so I wasn't able to go up there, but I'd planned on doing like a super cool chit-chat, you know, interview uh, with her about what she does in her life. Uh, So look out for that in the coming months, I guess. Maybe we can retry this again, but in the meantime, y'all are stuck with me. So this week, what I wanted to talk about was... uh, uh, something a little bit different from what we, what I've, I guess, podcasted about before, and you can probably hear me rummaging through my notes. So, it's too bad, so sad. Sorry, to, sorry for that. Anywho, this week I actually wanted to talk about real estate to start uh, getting people, millennials in particular, thinking about money. Um, I personally love real estate to death. Um. And what I want to convey in this podcast is that buying a home is way more accessible than a lot of you think. And it's not as hard as a lot of you think. Not to say that it's the easiest thing to do in the world, but it's definitely not this huge, big, overreaching goal that will that you think, okay, maybe one day down the road I'll be able to take care of. And as cliche as it sounds, honestly, if you can afford rent, typically you can afford a mortgage. There's a lot more things that go into that, but I'll try to dig into some of those during today's chit chat. So here we go. So I feel that as young people and particularly people of color, many of us aren't well versed or educated on financial matters, especially when it comes to real estate and real estate investing. So I wanted to open up today's podcast to shed some light on it and pave a way and a path to wealth um, via real estate. Now, buying a home isn't always the best financial decision. So I'm not saying that this is a financial decision that's totally good for every single person, but it, it does depend on where you live. Now, if you live in New York, I'd say continue to rent because the cost of ownership in New York is far greater than the cost to rent in New York. And by cost of ownership, I mean that if it's going to cost you $2,000 plus, well, maybe that's not a good figure. If it's going to cost you like $3,000 a month for like the cheapest mortgage that you can find in your particular zip code, then but it only costs you $1,500 to $2,000. I know those numbers probably are nowhere near what it really is, but I'm making something up off the top of my head. Um, but if it costs you a lot less to actually rent, 
continue to rent. And it just so happens to be like New York and probably San Francisco are those places where it costs way more to buy a home than it is to rent a home due to the uh, uh, housing costs in those areas. I want to go into this sharing my home buying journey to show you that not only can it be done, but it's also available to you easier than you may think. So I bought my very first house when I was 27. I had a first time home buyers program. And what a first time home buyer is, is if you've never owned a home or you haven't owned a home in three years. When I bought my house, um, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to buy. I did my research, looked around at different properties and how I stumbled upon the house that I bought. And it was a townhouse in in um in this area called Morrisville, right outside of Raleigh. It's actually where the RDU, where the Raleigh airport is. But I stumbled upon my house, super happenstance. I was literally driving down the road near my apartment one day, and I saw a sign that they were breaking ground soon on some townhouses in a nearby neighborhood. Now, I already knew at the time that that particular area of, of uh, Wake County was going to be popping, if you will, because it was really growing. RTP is up the street. So a lot of people that lived in that area were folks that worked for like your SAS, your Cisco's, your IBM's, just all the little tech, your Glaxo's. So a lot of people lived in that area because of its proximity to the RTP. And the cost of houses there were pretty, pretty up there. Um, and just so happened that the, the sign had the, was advertising for townhouses and it was in the price range that I wanted. And it also came with a garage. So I went to the, uh, what is it called? Like the, the, I guess on site builder people or whatever. I went over there, talked to them. They didn't have a model for me to see. And they hadn't broke ground yet. So I actually ended up buying my house sight unseen. I literally had a piece, a sheet of paper with some, you know, a floor plan on it. And I kind of just picked what I wanted from there. And the way that process went was I literally walked into the office, talked to the lady. Uh, she gave me a rundown of what was available um, still because there weren't that many uh, uh, houses they were going to put up at the time. And I told them I think about it and I would come back. And I believe she told me that if I went under contract, basically signed for that I was I was uh, going under contract basically means that you were signing over to commit to buying that home. Like, hey, I'm going to buy this. So let me sign my name on this piece of paper. The, and typically you have to pay some sort of deposit or earnest money saying that you're you're for real about it. So you got to put your money where your mouth is. And that amount varies. I think I put up $250 that day. And then maybe a few weeks later, I gave them another $250. So they needed $500 to to um, go under contract. And um, so I gave them that money. And then they told me, well, if you sign before the end of January, uh, we'll throw in your refrigerator for free. And I was like, well, shoot, that sounds good because the, the fridge was stainless steel. And um, I went under contract. Now, now the process, how, well, let me see. How can I go about this? So I'm going to give you two different processes because my first house was new construction. 
mean it wasn't a home that was already existing. They were building it. And I just so happened to go in at a time where they had not even uh, broke ground yet. So I had a I had a lot of freedom in choices that I had for my home. I'm actually in the process of buying a house right now in the DMV and that one is existing. So the I'm learning the differences between buying a new construction house and buying an existing house. And just for my personal preference, I like buying new construction and I and hopefully I'll get into that <laughs> get into the wise of that a little later. But anyway, I bought the first one at 27 and of course, being in new construction, I had like a tentative date as to when the house would be finished and when I could actually move in. That aside, that's pretty much the background of how it began. Now, let's talk about money and your credit and all the adult things that come with purchasing a home. A lot of times, particularly with first time home buyer programs or even new construction situations, they have a set of lenders and possibly like title companies and title companies are the people who have like lawyers and stuff that are writing up all the legalese and legal documents um, that you're going to have to sign and put some money towards that. And basically they hold like the earnest money that I gave up to, um, to um, commit to buying a house when I went under contract, title companies hold that money in a like interest bearing account. And they are basically like the, uh, I guess the, the the middleman between the bank and you and the seller. So anywho, a lot of times with new construction properties, they do some, they'll have like certain title companies or certain banks as well that they call preferred lenders. When I bought my townhouse, they had two preferred lenders, uh, Bank of America and BB&T. And with those two lenders, they said, if you use them, then they were going to pay a certain amount of of my closing costs. They said, hey, if you use these lenders, we'll pay up to $3,000 of your closing costs. So for those who don't know, when you buy a house, just buying it is not the only money that you put up. Typically, you're going to have to put up closing costs, meaning there's like you have to pay for an inspection. You have to pay for these lawyers that are writing up this uh, documentation. You need to possibly put down um, a down payment on the house. Like there's a lot of little fees and title changes and taxes and um, like property taxes and whatever HOA um, has accumulated over time. There's just basically this laundry list of fees that goes into servicing and purchasing that home. And, and at the end of your list of fees, it adds up. And then those are your costs to close on your property. Anywho, so I, at the time I was a first time home buyer and I researched both banks. Now, I did mine a little bit backwards. I went under contract first and then I went to go find a lender. Um, I don't recommend doing that. I recommend getting your lending first so you know how much you can purchase and well, so you know how much you qualify to purchase and then go out shopping. So anyway, I went to both websites of both banks and I looked to see what their first time home buyer programs were. At the time, I ended up going with BB&T because they had an awesome program called um, CHIP, which is like community home, community something in partnership. I don't know, some crap. They had a program called CHIP where they would pay 100% um, or sorry, they would fund your loan 100%, meaning I wouldn't have to put down a down payment. 
some mortgage companies will fund 97%, meaning you 97% of your mortgage, of your loan, I guess. So if your house is $100,000, they're going to pay $97,000. You need to come up with $3,000 of your own money. So they were 100% financing and they didn't require private mortgage insurance. Now, private mortgage insurance is an additional fee you would have to pay if you're, if you're not putting 20% down. So think of it as like an insurance policy that banks require. So basically, if you don't put 20% down on a house, most, most companies or banks are going to charge you a private mortgage insurance fee. And that is basically a percentage of the mortgage that you have to pay in a fee until you get 20% equity in your home. Let's say you found a lender that lets you put down 10%, which isn't 20, and they charge you private mortgage insurance. Your private mortgage insurance can be an additional 50 to a hundred and something dollars extra on top of your mortgage that you're already paying. And you have to continue to pay that until you have 20% equity in your home, meaning 20% of your home you own um, versus how much you owe. So instead of owing, if you get a mortgage where you are funded 100%, the bank owns 100% of that house. Now, when it gets, when your mortgage gets down to $80,000 versus the $100,000 it was, that's when your private mortgage insurance will fall off because now you have 20% equity in the house. Hopefully that makes sense to y'all. But basically I see it as an extra fee. I think it's unnecessary. So whenever I do look up mortgages, I try to find a way to, I find banks and mortgage programs that do not charge that fee because that will um, limit how much house you can afford. Now, when it comes to getting your mortgage, I have a few steps that you should take um, when you're getting your finances together. Because I'm going to tell you this, whenever you buy, when you're in the middle of buying a house and you're getting um, funding for your house, all of these mortgage companies are going to ask for a ish ton of information. And I want to give you an idea of what that information is. So first off, the first thing you need to do is know where you stand when it comes to your credit. Know what's on your credit reports. So if you have derogatory info, meaning late payments, charge-offs, things of that nature, you need to start working on remedying that. Remedying? Remedying? Yeah. Remedying that. You can contact in writing these creditors and ask for them to remove your late payments. Obviously, you're going to have to sharpen up your negotiation skills or be super duper nice because really you're you want to kiss mass to get these lenders to remove things from your credit report so if you have late payments from a very long time ago i would say try to get those removed if you have charge-offs from from a long time ago i would say try to get those removed um as a reference i'm gonna put this in the podcast notes but as a reference there's a website you can go to myfico.com Basically, it's where you can get your real credit scores, not Credit Karma, not like some of these like credit servicing people who give you like these uh, uh, generated numbers and give which gives you an idea of what your credit score is. My FICO is actually who creditors pull to get your credit score. So they have a website called myfico.com. And on myfico.com, there is a community forum. It's an amazing, amazing resource. There is a section in that forum 
strictly for repairing your credit. So I, if you have some things to your credit, I highly advise you to go into those forums and you can do a search by a creditor, whether it's Chase, American Express, Verizon, Sprint, whoever. There's people who have been doing this and have been doing this for a long time. They even have templates that you can, you know, print off, change the names and send to these creditors to request things to get removed from your credit report. So I highly recommend that you guys use that as a resource if that's something that you need. And the reason why you need that is typically you're going to need a score in at least the mid 600s to qualify for most loan programs. Some loan programs take less than that, but you may have to put up more money up front and you may you'll likely have a higher interest rate. So keep that in mind. Uh, the goal is to have your credit score as high as it can be. Next, research home buyer programs. Nearly all banks have some sort of first-time home buyer program that will offer either zero or nearly zero money down to qualify for the mortgage. Like I said, at the time of my first mortgage, BB&T was offering 100% financing with no private mortgage insurance. I think now they don't do that anymore. I feel like it's like, I think they offer 97% now. So you would have to come up with 3% of your, of your housing price. But again, they still offer no private mortgage insurance. So again, if you can avoid having to pay that. And like I mentioned too, some homes come with preferred lenders. Even with existing homes, it's, it's rare from what I've seen, but some existing homes say, hey, we prefer you to use XYZ people. They may throw in a little closing cost help for you to sweeten the deal for you to use it. Also, FHA is an option as well. FHA is through the federal government. Basically, it's a, a loan that's going to be offered and, and backed by the federal government. They have, they give you a whole beautiful list of things that you need to qualify for an FHA loan. Typically with those loans I've seen, you do have to pay private mortgage insurance and, but they do take lower credit scores and they also, um, you still have to put maybe three and a half to 4% down, but that's still a really good option that a lot of people have used, especially once the housing crisis came, came about. So third thing, once you get your mortgage company that you want to use lined up and you've, you know where you stand when it comes to your credit, next thing is get organized and prepare ahead of time because the mortgage process is a ton of documentation. And if your bank does it right, when you go into underwriting, it's going to be very painless and hopefully very quick. So let me, a little bit of background on what underwriting is. When you apply for a mortgage, this isn't like when you, eh, I mean, I don't know how cars work, but cars are obviously a lot faster. But when you apply for a mortgage, you basically, you know, fill out the application. They give you what's called a, um, oh God, what's the word? They give you a letter that says, hey, you are t like, basically you're tentatively approved for this loan. Meaning based on the information you gave us and your credit reports, we can offer you this much money, this much money. They'll give you the, they'll say you're approved. They'll tell you how much you need to take this letter with you and have this letter ready for when you go look at properties, because a lot of home sellers and their realtors, they're really not going to take you seriously until you have something in writing that, Hey, I'm already pre-approved. That's what it's called. It's called a pre-approval letter. So they already have this information ready to go. Like, oh, this person is serious. They're going to buy this house. They're ready. We're just waiting on go. When you go to these mortgage companies, um, like I said, you 
do your information. They give you your letter and then they're going to ask for your loan officer is going to ask for all kinds of info. They're typically going to want two months of your bank statements, two to three years of tax form. So your taxes that you filled out over the past two to three years, they're going to ask for. They're going to ask for two years of W-2s and all income sources. They're going to ask for like two to six months of pay stubs and They'll probably ask for more stuff too, depending on what your financial situation is looking like. And what they're going to do, they collect all of these, all of this paperwork, all of this data, and they'll say, okay, yeah, you're approved. That's the first step. Next thing that's going to happen is your, your loan is going to go into underwriting, meaning your loan officer takes all this information in this pretty little document, and then they're going to send it to somebody else. That somebody else is the person that gets final um, are the final people who approve your loan. So they're the ones that say, hey, you're clear to go to closing. We can approve this loan. So the, the underwriter actually looks at your um, all of your documentation, your finances, your credit, your, your work history, your income history, and they are looking for a, basically a way to, I wouldn't say they're looking for a way to not approve you, but they're just making sure your stuff is legit. Because I don't know if any of you are aware of the, how terrible the mortgage crisis was back in 2007, 2006, but it was awful. People were just giving out loans like it was Skittles at a freaking kindergarten, it, like it was Skittles at Halloween, for real. It was just any and everybody. So now they have underwriters who are like combing through your finances to make sure you can afford this and that there's no risky financial behavior that you are partaking in that will cause them to think that in the future you may default on this mortgage. So have all of these documents ready and organized. I actually use, um, I'm a psycho when it comes to that kind of stuff. When I first bought my, my first, when I had my first mortgage, I literally printed off all this stuff nice and neat and pretty. And I <laughs> put it in a notebook and I had like index tabs as to what each section was. So I had a tab for income that had all of my W-2 copies. I had a tab for bank statements with all my bank accounts and bank statements in it, etc. It was pretty OCD. I even like printed off this pretty little cover and slipped it into the front of the notebook. So I presented this gorgeous uh, organized uh, notebook to my loan officer. She kind of looked at me like, okay, this girl is kind of crazy, but all right, whatever. Makes my life easier. Like if you are stumbling through paperwork and trying to find stuff and pull stuff together from you don't even know where, it's going to make the process a lot longer um, for you. And that part of it is the biggest headache. So that's why I say ahead of time, you, if you want to buy a house next year, you need to be getting your ish together this year for it making sure you know where all of your documentation is, you know where all of your tax forms are, you know where all of your W-2s are. Have all that ready to go. And what I use now is um, Google Docs. So whenever this go around, my loan officer was asking for so all of these financials, I downloaded them because thank God everything's on the internet. I could uh, export all that information off of the accounts online and I just dropped that data into a Google Doc and then I gave the loan officer access to that link. So she or he could go in, search for what they needed and I named it properly and they can just grab all the files that they need instead of putting it in an email and you're trying to find the email and somebody searching for the email and all the other jazz. Like here's a Google Doc, bookmark the doc, 
all the docs you need, I'm going to drop in there. And every time they ask me for something, I just drop it in the doc and tell them, hey, it's in there now. Knock yourself out. So being organized is going to help you in the long run and reduce any headaches. Also, in preparation for buying a house, don't rack up any new debt. When you're in the loan process, I highly advise just don't spend money. <laughs> spend no money if you can. Um, outside of your basic needs, don't go buying stuff because if you have more debt, uh, if they pull your credit reports at underwriting, and you have more debt then than you had, if you have more debt now than you had when you first, when they first pulled your credit report, that's risky behavior. If you have all these uh, overdraft fees in your bank account from the time from now and you didn't have them when you first uh, applied for this loan or sent over your bank statements, that is a red flag to them for risky financial behavior. So just don't spend no money. Don't rack up any debt. You damn sure don't need to put anything else on your credit. That will get you cut quickly. And any loan officer worth their salt, they're going to tell you this. So you don't have to remember this podcast to say, what did she say not to do? They will tell you, don't buy anything. Don't put anything on your credit. Don't apply for new credit. Don't do anything with your credit until this loan closes. There have been, I heard horror stories of people who, before they went to underwriting, they, in anticipation about anticipation of buying a home, they went to rooms to go and bought some furniture on credit. They had the cash, but they bought some furniture on credit to, you know, get whatever deal they had at the time. And the loan people were like, oh, nope, you racked up more credit. You're applying for stuff. I'm sorry. We can't, we can't close on this loan. Too bad. So sad. And they lost out on the deal for their house. So just, just be prepared. Um, Another thing you may have to write are what they call LOX, which stands for Letters of, of Explanation. So if there's any derogatory information in your credit reports, let's say you have a late fee for a credit card from five years ago and they see that. They know that was a long time ago, so they don't technically count that against you anymore. But the loan officer and the underwriter are going to um, likely ask for a letter of explanation, which means you need to write them a quick little blurb explaining why you got that late fee and why it's not going to happen again. I had a late fee on, I feel like a car payment from like years ago when I applied for my first mortgage, my first house. And I just explained, you know, well, you know, uh, my dad was paying my loan at the time, paying my car note at the time. And he missed the payment. I didn't know about it until, until recently, um, it won't happen again because, because now I'm paying for it myself, blah, blah, blah. You know, have some sort of explanation. What they're looking for is why did it happen? How, why is it not going to happen again? Keep it short. Keep it sweet. All right. Um, last thing is look for a home after you get your pre-approval letter. That way you know what you can comfortably afford and what your monthly mortgage will be. So be smart. Don't a lot of times what these com these mortgage companies do, and it's, it's through a, a mathematical equation, they'll give you an idea of, okay, this is how much you can afford. This is what your monthly payment will be. If you, if you know you can only comfortably afford a mortgage payment that's $1,000, and which may be like a $150,000 house, but the bank told you you can afford $230,000, get the $150,000 house. Don't go looking for a $230,000 property. $230,000 property when you know 
you cannot comfortably afford that mortgage payment. Be smart. Because last thing you want to do is A, be house poor, and B, not have a house because you defaulted on your mortgage because honestly you couldn't afford what you were living in. Um, Being house poor means you have this mortgage payment, but you can't afford no furniture to put in it. (laughs) All you're going to do, all you can do is afford to live there. Because keep in mind, what comes with your mortgage is going to be tax. Well, your taxes, your the principal, the interest, your property taxes, and your homeowner's insurance should all are all going to be rolled into your mortgage payment. So you can that's all your house stuff. But you're still going to pay utilities. You're still going to have to pay, you know, internet, cable if that's what you want. If you have a townhouse or a condo. You're, they're going to also add in your condo fees or your homeowners association fees into that mortgage. So that stuff will highly affect your affordability. So moral of the story is, even though they say you can afford 230, if you know that you can't and you really will be more comfortable with 150, look at houses that are 150 and less. When you're also buying a home, location, 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 location truly matters. Home buying is an investment. Uh, I feel like a lot of millennials and women too, I feel like, get wrapped up in what our grandparents' ideals were when it came to buying a house. Like a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to buy a house until I'm married. And when I buy that house, I'm going to live in it forever. Whatever you do is up to you. If that's what you want to do, that's cool. I personally don't look into home buying, look at, look at home buying like that. Home buying to me is an investment, meaning I'm buying it for what my needs are right now. I'm going to buy it in an area that I know there's growth, or at least I'm going to buy it knowing that I'm uh, with a pretty good idea of the appreciation value of it, meaning the house is going to be worth more over time versus what I paid for it. And when the time is optimal, I'm going to sell it, (laughs) cash out, get my check and either put that difference into a savings or roll that money into uh, another home. Whether you want to upgrade to the next home is fine, but I don't necessarily look into it as something I'm a, that's my first house is my forever house. And I'm always going to be in that house. Nine times out of 10, you probably won't be. I have an idea of, yeah, one day I will have a, what I call the quote unquote forever home, but the forever home is not something I can afford. So I need to buy these for now homes to build myself up to afford the forever home. Good location, like I said, means appreciation, which means money in your pocket when you sell. I bought my house, uh, my first place for um, significantly less than what I sold it for. So thinking of it like this, if you bought a house for $150,000 and you live in it for, hmm, let's say, three years, as you're paying on the house for three years, you know, your mortgage costs are coming down. Let me give you a better number that makes more sense to me. Let's say you bought your house for $160,000. Three years, your mortgage uh how much you you're left owing on it is 150,000. If you move into an area that is appreciating and now your house is worth $200,000, guess how much money you're going to get when you sell it. So 150 or 200,000 you sell it for, you owe 150, that's $50,000 cash money. Now, I will say, let's back this up, you may not necessarily get all this money because there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Because uh, 
you have to pay your realtor when you sell your house, which typically is a percentage of how much you sold the house for. You have to pay the buyer's realtor a percentage of what you're selling your house for. And then depending on whatever you negotiate um, in your house buying contract, you may or may not have to pay the buyer's closing costs. In my experience, the area I lived in at the time, it was a seller's market, meaning I could do whatever the hell I want and people were vying to buy my home, meaning there were way more buyers than there were homes for sale. So when I sold my house, I had, I sold my house in less than 48 hours. It I, it went online Friday morning and by Sunday or not Sunday, sorry, Saturday evening, I was under contract. I had 20 viewings in those two days. I think I had, I had over, there was 20 viewings. There was way more viewings that were scheduled. I actually had to cancel the scheduled viewings for Sunday and Monday because the price of the house was going up too high. And at, at some point your um, bank, your house has to appraise for the price that you're selling it for at the very least um, in order for that buyer's loan to go through. They're not going to approve a loan where your house isn't worth as much as you are buying it for. So if the house is only worth 200,000 and you offer 300,000, your bank is like, oh, hell no. Why would we do that? That don't make no sense. So I had to cancel those viewings. So I had 20 offers. I think I had 20 viewings. I had 10 offers and I accepted the best offer. So like I said, I was in a seller's market. So when I sold my house, I did not have to pay any closing costs for the buyer. The buyer paid their own closing costs and I walked away with a check. Also, what I did have to pay was I had to pay, obviously, my realtor for listing a house. Luckily for me, I used a, a what's called a flat rate realtor. And a flat rate realtor is someone who charges you a flat rate. So they don't take a percentage of your house price. They take a, a check and that's it. So I paid my guy $1,000 to list my house. Um, and basically it's stripped down. He didn't like have showings per se. He wasn't at the house showing people my house. He, it was like a call-in service. So he put the lockbox on there and people called a number. They scheduled it. I approved it via like an app on my phone to say yes or no. And then the realtors would get a confirmation saying, yeah, I said it was okay for them to come in the house. They put in the code in the door. Boom. They come in, they look. I wasn't in the house for that, but they come in, they look and that's it. It was very stripped down, but uh, very useful for me because it didn't cost me that much money. So um, you have to pay. Uh, so I paid my guy $1,000. I did have to pay the buyer's realtor. That's how they encourage people to buy homes because they don't want anybody to um, be discouraged from buying a home if you have to pay the realtor. So that comes out of the seller's cut of whatever money they have left over. And that buyer's realtor, I think it was like two and a half or 3% is what their cut was. But that was it for me, you know, outside of prorated HOA fees, prorated uh, mortgage, prorated interest rate for that day. And that was it. They wrote me my, my nice good check and I went, dropped it off at the bank and voila, sold a house very quickly. But yeah, keep that in mind. Like you can walk away with a nice chunk of money. There's 
that was the, and my situation was different. You know, everybody's situation isn't like that, but I just so happened to get in at a good time and a good price. And I was able to leave at a good time and a good price so that I made a really good profit. So that kind of money is great. And it's also tax-free. So the federal government does not tax real estate, like profits from real estate up to, I want to say, I don't know, like $250,000. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's like up to two fifty. dollars So if, if you make $249,000 in profit, that is just straight money in the bank. They don't tax that. Anything over that, of course, they will tax unless you roll that money into a new home. That's the caveat. But anyway, I can get a little bit deeper into this as far as like how to you know, the steps that you can take to purchase a home. But the main things I wanted to point out were getting your credit together, being organized when it comes to your uh, financial documents and what to do whenever you're looking for a home and researching home buyer programs. Like I absolutely love real estate and I can go on and on and on and on about this forever, but that would mean I would have probably like a two hour podcast and I don't want to I don't want to have y'all out here like that. So I'm going to leave it there for now. But the main point is buying a home is not as hard as you think. And it's not as inaccessible as you think. It is very accessible if you do your research and you know where you stand and you feel comfortable and confident. But home buying especially is a pathway to wealth, in my opinion. So I say get out there. If you've been thinking about buying a home, this is a great time to start doing it. The feds, meaning the federal government, they are raising the interest rates. We've had these super low interest rates since the housing crisis because the, you know, the economy was in the tank, was in the pits. And these, um, and the, and the government wanted people to still be able to buy homes. So these low interest rates, now that the economy is bounced back, are not going to last forever. So if you are thinking about buying a home in the next year or two, I highly, highly encourage you to go ahead and do it because over the next few years, our, our government, our interest rates are about to level off to what they should be for an economy that's doing as well as it is. So interest rates are going up. They, they've been raised since last October. So, and they were raised again, um, I think at the, uh, about mid-March of this year. They're going to be going up a couple of points in the next two years. So if that's something that you're thinking about doing, I say go ahead and do it. Get your get your life together, get your money together, get your, your credit together and start really working towards buying a house. All right. So that's all I have, you guys. Hopefully next time I'll have some, some intro music. I've been waiting on a friend of mine's going to send me some music, but I guess we both keep forgetting about it. So Hopefully I'll have that for you sooner rather than later for our next podcast. But until then, have a great day. Bye.